What's going on, Wellness Gang? Welcome back to Embodied Wellness Radio, a podcast framed around making women healthy again. Today's show is part two of our digestion series. Part one, if you haven't given it a listen yet, go back and listen. It is simple strategies that everybody can implement to support their digestion. In today's show, we're going to be talking you through the process of digestion and going through all of the areas that could potentially be out of balance or deficient when we're talking about digestion. And this is a really important discussion to have because, you know, on social media, there's lots of programs being sold, not to mention any names, under generalized gut health for everyone. And we also see um, supplements that are marketed as gut health supplement. And these generalized terms are not really adequate for somebody who is struggling with digestive issues. Some of the products can be helpful for somebody who maybe just wants to generally kind of improve their digestive system, but it is always important to understand just how complex it is. And if you are somebody who is struggling with digestive issues, why it's so important to work with a practitioner or start to learn about these things yourself and get proper testing done to see where and why you're out of balance and support your body back to harmony. Hey everybody, I'm here too. <laughs> so if this is your first time listening on this show, what we do is we kind of like to go in back and forth between interviews and some of these deep dive podcasts where we go into, uh, for example, today talking about digestion and certain things that we see in our nutrition clientele um, that we think we can release to the public because more people need to be healthy. So hope you enjoy today's podcast on digestion. Sarah, what's the first topic? So first, it's important to understand just how complex our digestive system is, as well as our body. And a lot of the time, women will come with maybe one issue, like, oh, I'm feeling bloated, or maybe they have food sensitivities. And typically what's going on is there's a few places that are either deficient or out of balance, and it might start with one smaller issue that then can have systemic effects, not only in the digestive system, but also on your whole body. So to put this into a little bit of context, as we move through the digestive system, we're essentially taking you through the journey of food on the outside of your body, to poo coming out of your body and talking about all of the things that happen in between. And once we go over what's going on, we will go back and we'll talk about some areas that could be out of balance. So this is important to understand if you do have digestive issues is that there's a lot of places where there can be problems. And so if you are someone who is struggling or maybe you've tried out a couple supplements or you know tried to eliminate certain foods and it hasn't been working or helpful, just know that there is hope and it's important to take, all, as always, a full perspective to really understand how all of these puzzle pieces come together. I agree, because if I see another person posting about, well, you, you know, your food's not feeling quite right, just work on your digestion. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, Honestly. or I saw a fitness influencer who's like, this greens powder cured my IBS. <laughs> I was like, sorry, what? <laughs> just one note before we get into this action-packed podcast full of information we don't like to usually run ads on the show sometimes we talk about products that we really really love and we might link you to those because i actually genuinely think they're going to be a help for most people uh, but for the most part we actually have uh, declined advertisements that have uh, we've had the opportunity of putting on the show so we really grow by word of mouth so if you enjoyed this show if you've enjoyed our past shows please share it with a friend or share it on your social media and then we can reach more people all right, so let's get into it. Something important to note about your digestive system and specifically the gastrointestinal tract is that it's essentially like a hollow tube that runs from your mouth all the way to your anus and that anything that's inside of that hollow tube is actually considered part of the outside world. And until that matter or those food particles get absorbed into your body and into your bloodstream, it's not considered part of you. 
So if you eat a piece of corn and you see it come out of your poop, that corn was technically never in your body. So there's a little fun fact for you. We're just a big donut. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. And digestion actually begins in your brain. And there's this phase of digestion that's often overlooked or missed, and it's called the cephalic phase. So if you remember Pavlov's dogs when they did that behavioral experiment, and the dogs were able to salivate at the sound of a bell. And so this goes to show that we can start to prime our digestive system just by cues in our environment. So sound could be one, you know, the dinging of the oven when something's done. We also use um, smell as a pretty obvious one. If you smell something that's really tasty and you start to salivate, that is your body preparing for digestion. Cinnabon in the mall. Yeah. (laughs) Preach. Sometimes even just, you know, looking at pictures of food or thinking about food, we can start to be like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. Yes, you are. So our brain is intricately connected to our digestive system. And thinking about food and mentally preparing our body for digestion, it already primes the process by getting the digestive juices such as salivary amylase flowing. So salivary amylase is also known as saliva. So when we actually have an experience with our food, right, we're taking it in, we're noticing what it smells like, we're noticing how it looks, we are quite literally priming our body and starting that process of digestion digestion to get the resources we need in order to digest that food. And so again, this is called the cephalic phase and our stomach is starting to respond to the sight, smell, taste, or thought of digestion. So 20% of your acid secretion actually begins in this phase. And we'll talk about the importance of stomach acid coming up, but if 20%, which is a pretty big amount, just by taking in the experience of your food and priming your body for digestion. This is also the time where it's really, really important to get your body into a parasympathetic state. So that's also known as rest and digest mode, which we'll come back to as the name suggests, rest and digest mode allows your body to be in a position where it's ready to digest food. The alternative to that is being in a sympathetic nervous system dominant state where it's called fight and flight, right? And when we're in that fight and flight state, it is drawing resources away from our digestive system. So cephalic phase, really important to use our senses to take in the experience of food and that starts to prime our body and get the digestive juices and the salivary amylase and our stomach acid ready for digestion. So after our body's ready to take in this food, it begins phase one of digestion, which is ingestion. So if we're going to eat something, we got to put it inside of our mouths. And this one's pretty self-explanatory. It's where the food enters into the mouth. And the mouth is actually another overlooked part of digestion. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't know about Denon, but I am infamous for not really chewing my food that well. I will typically like eat something. Yeah. (laughs) AKA inhaling it and eat stuff really fast. And it kind of misses out on that first part of digestion, right? The mechanical digestion. So this is um, in the mouth where a lot of our mechanical digestion, AKA we're actually using our muscles to break down food takes place. So chewing is one, using mastication, which is using the teeth. Our tongue also plays a really big role in breaking the food into smaller pieces. And all of this allows us to increase the surface area of the food. Now, this is really important because the more surface area we have, when that food bolus starts to move through the process of digestion, it has more surface area for us to attach things like acid and enzymes so that we can better break down that food as opposed to something just being in this big ball that we have to try to break through to get the acid and enzymes down. Think of it this way. We are not like an anaconda. You know how an anaconda will just eat an entire like mouse or wombat hole? They have an entire different digestive system than us. We need to break that down. Don't be an anaconda. (laughs) My anaconda don't want... All right, we'll save that for another podcast. 
So yeah, we have uh, mechanical digestion inside of our mouth where we're using our teeth and mastication to break down food. And we also have some supports for chemical digestion. So we have, as I mentioned, salivary amylase, aka saliva, and we have lingual lipase. So these are some enzymes that already start to begin the process of breaking down the food before it even moves through our esophagus. So once this is complete, our chewing is complete, should be about 30 to 40 times. I tried it once. It was a long time. It's a lot of chewing to be done. The food is then swallowed and it's moved into the esophagus to begin the next stage called propulsion, which is essentially the end of our voluntary voluntary digestive process. So what that means is everything that happens in the mouth, you're really thinking about it, right? You have to chew your food, you have to um, swallow your food, and then after that, you're not really thinking like, oh, my stomach acid should probably break down the food. So one thing, although we kind of joke around about, you know, how Sarah tends to not be, I would say, very present with her meals oftentimes, and she does inhale them a little bit. There are steps that you can take in order to nail in this first stage of digestion. Because honestly, if you screw up this very first step, it can just cause a havoc throughout the rest of the digestion process. So one thing that we often will maybe tell our high stress clients or maybe on the go CEO types is just to sit down and before you have your meal, sit down and take three to five deep breaths, just so you can start to bring down your stress response. And then you'll be a bit more present with your meal, you'll slow yourself down. And it can almost be your way, maybe even the Pavlov's dog effect of letting yourself know, hey, I need to be present with this meal, take my time to chew it properly. Because what's the point in just taking in this food if we're not going to use it entirely. So that can be one step for you. If you are one of those people who's a bit of a stress eater or always on the go, take three to five deep breaths, and just to realign yourself and let you know, it's time to eat this food properly. Hmm. So after the food moves from down our esophagus, that's starting propulsion. So this is the movement of food through our body. And we also use the word sometimes motility, which you'll commonly hear. And this movement involves a few different processes. So this allows it again to move through the digestive tract. So one of these processes is called peristalsis. So this is a movement of smooth muscles that move in alternating waves to propel food along. And I remember when I was going to school, my Ayurveda teacher, she was very... Uh, extravagant with all of her explanations and she was like using her arms and she was like imagine it like this giant whooshing and whoosh, whoosh. and it's kind of uh, contracting these muscles to really help move the food along and so this process is helping to also mix a lot of your digestive juices which allows food and liquids to enter your stomach even if you are standing on your head which is pretty cool so gravity is not the thing that is actually moving the food down in your body it's this movement known as propulsion and motility Another way to think of this, so it's like simple to understand and easy visual is, you know, those like yogurt tubes that used to used to have the kids, essentially, if you, you know, press the yogurt from the bottom of the tube up, that's like your muscles down the throat, pressing the food and moving it up or down, I guess, into the stomach. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this is happening again in um, alternating waves to allow that food to move. And this is largely controlled by some cells that are called ICC cells. Don't need to know that, but there are cells that are allowing this movement to take place, which will be important when we come back to some issues that could happen with overall motility. So once in the stomach, our body uses resources such as stomach acid and gastric juices to further the process of chemical breakdown. So this helps to churn the food with the gastric juices and it forms something called chyme. And chyme is like this... Sounds really uh, not very nice to explain, but it's essentially like this big sludge, which contains partly digested food and gastric juices. And after it leaves the stomach, that is the part that is going to start to move into your intestines. So after the food is leaving the 
intestines, it moves first into the small intestine. So this is where chyme is mixed with more digestive juices, and physical digestion is also performed by a process called segmentation. And the small intestine is where we absorb most of our nutrients, such as vitamins, minerals, and water. And we really need this process of segmentation to be working well, which is essentially like small contractions of circular muscles. And this is, again, part of that motility where we move small sections of the intestine, which helps to divide, break up and mix contents of that chyme with the digestive juices. So again, this is where a lot of our absorption takes place. And because we need to absorb a lot of our food and nutrients, this process of digestion where food or chyme is moving through the intestines is actually relatively slow. If this process occurs too quickly or someone has, you know, too quick motility or they're having like six, seven bowel movements a day, we aren't actually able to digest and absorb as much of the nutrients as when it's happening properly. We also don't want this process to be too slow and that could lead to constipation, which could eventually lead to issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where we have undigested food that then starts to ferment. So we want this process of motility and segmentation to be happening not too quick, not too slow, but just in the right speed. So in this process of absorption that happens in the small intestine, there are also a few organs called accessory organs. Now, these are not technically part of the GI tract. They're in other areas of your body, but they help to um, aid in the process of digestion. So these includes organs such as your liver, which helps to produce bile salts, which can help to emulsify, aka break down and mix fats. It also includes your gallbladder, which helps to store and release bile and your pancreas, which produces digestive enzymes and bicarbonate. We often hear the pancreas in relation to insulin, but it also does help with some digestive enzymes. So we have in the small intestine, again, this chyme is moving through. We're doing a lot of our absorption. There's some movement happening that allows the food to be mixed and also helps with absorption. And we also have some input from accessory organs that are going to further help to break down and absorb that food. So once the food moves from the small intestine, it goes into the large intestine. And here we do a little bit more absorption. So we have things like residual water, electrolytes, and vitamins that are absorbed. We also have enteric bacteria. So that's some of the bacteria that is in what we often hear called the microbiome. And this helps with the process as well. So this is where we have the largest population of bacteria in the GI tract. So we hear this word microbiome which really refers to the total bacteria in an organism or in ourselves. But with the gut microbiome, most of our microbes are existing in the small intestine. And this is really, really important to have a good balance of gut bacteria so that we don't have issues such as bloating, gas, constipation, um, maybe some more severe conditions that can arise from imbalances to gut bacteria. And it also makes sure that we're able to, again, digest and absorb those uh, nutrients and also protect the intestinal wall and the lining of the intestines. So in the large intestine, um, we also have bacteria that help with defecation, so aka moving feces towards the rectum for elimination. And that's really just fancy words for you taking a poop. (laughs) We also have this process that is really quite overlooked in digestion and isn't talked about enough, and it's called your migrating motor complex. So this kicks in in a fasted state, so about three to four hours after you eat food. And now many of us are eating pretty much all day, right? Like grazing, snacking, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that can impact your migrating motor complex's ability to actually do its job. And so issues with the migrating motor complex is a really common cause or influential factor in things like SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth 
where it's not able to do its job because we're eating too constantly or too consistently. And then we are going to start to see some issues come up as a result. So the migrating motor complex is essentially like these little brooms and it just goes through and it sweeps up the small intestine, clearing excess bacteria and remnant con. So let's say you eat something and the food moves through your small intestine into the large intestine and maybe you weren't able to really absorb everything. So the migrating motor complex will come in and sweep out all the extra crud and help to clear out your intestines. So now again, if this isn't working properly, we can have some of that excess chyme, or as Denon would probably say, that excess crud, and it can actually start to crust into the walls of the intestine. And now I was listening to a really interesting podcast from somebody who um, does a process called colon hydrotherapy, where essentially you're like putting a tube up somebody's butt. I've had it done before. It was one of the most influential factors of me helping to heal my SIBO near the end, and they're rinsing out the intestines with Well, hold water. on. Tell them what they found. They said that they were finding, like, so much crud in people's intestines. Like, so much crusted poo, essentially, in, in people's intestines, even in people who said that they weren't constipated. And so... They were saying that largely this is due to just how much we're eating and we're not allowing this migrating motor complex to go in and to do its job. What about undigested food such as yams? That's what they found in mine. That's what I was trying to get to. Yes. So for some people, you don't realize right. this. <laughs> All right. So this is turning into a podcast talking about Sarah's poo. But this is really important to know that um, there are some parts of food that are hard to break down. And you probably hear us talk before about why cooking your vegetables is really important or... If you follow some people on social media, they'll say like, don't eat vegetables at all because they're so hard to digest. When I had colon hydrotherapy, what came out when they were rinsing out my bowels was all of the skins of sweet potato. And the lady who was actually doing my therapy, she was like, yeah, the same thing happened to me. She's like, you got to peel your sweet potatoes, my love. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so as you can see, this love-hate relationship that we've developed with sweet potatoes over Why the years. Why is it always the sweet potatoes? I never thought about I that until right know. now. It's a love, you love them and they hate you. They do. And they were crudded in my intestines. Exactly. They were causing my blood sugar to spike. Oh my. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a toxic so, relationship. You're not willing to admit it. No, you don't know what you don't know until you know. Is that the phrase? You don't know what you don't know until you find out what you don't know. And sometimes you have to do some interesting therapies, such as hydrocolon Sometimes you don't therapy. find out until they stick a tube up your butt, and then it all comes out in the wash. Yeah, exactly. Pun intended. Hey. <laughs> hey. All right, so we got the migrating motor complex. Really important to leave enough space between your meals. So as you can see, we've been talking about this process for a little bit, right? And this whole digestion thing is a fairly complex process, and there's different places where we can have issues with digestion. So we've gone through the process of food coming into your mouth. So again, we have, um, starting with the brain, we have the cephalic phase of digestion where we're preparing our body to take in this food. Inside of the mouth, we have both mechanical digestion as well as a little bit of chemical digestion. So we have things like chewing, our tongue, and salivary amylase. We then have this idea of motility or propulsion as the movement of food through our intestines going down in your esophagus, first entering the stomach where we have gastric juices, stomach acid, then moving through the small intestine, through the large intestine, and then out your bum. So let's go back now to the top and talk about a few places or a few areas where you could potentially have issues with digestion. And now if you're listening to this podcast and you have some pretty severe digestive issues, it's important to take everything with 
um, a grain of salt in the context of you as an individual. So I might say, you know, 20% of IBS cases can be linked to pancreatic enzymes. So if you have IBS and you're listening to this, I don't want you to go out and buy pancreatic enzymes because you, oh, that might be me. So it's really important to always either again, work with somebody or get proper testing done talk to your healthcare practitioner or team and really figure out what is happening for you. Because some of the things that we may talk about could actually be harmful if you're implementing things that are not right for your body and they can actually set you back. So this is really just to understand some of the takeaways that could help everyone like eating in a parasympathetic state and also understanding that there's lots of complexities and that in any healing process with digestion, we need to take the whole picture into consideration. If I had a dollar for every time that somebody realizes they're like, oh, I've got bad digestion. So they go to the store and they get a 60 billion um, probiotic, start cranking that back two, three times a day. And two weeks later, they're royally fucked. And that's just because we like to think that there's always these band-aid treatments for our di digestion when, as you can see, we're 20 minutes into explaining the digestive process in very, very simple forms, even though sometimes it might not sound like it's simple, but that's the most basic understanding that you can get from it. It's a very complex process. Test, don't guess, as we always say, and don't start uh, flipping on any like band-aid treatments, expecting that to just heal all symptoms. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, probiotics are kind of like... I feel like when I first started practicing too, you know, someone has digestive issues and you're like, oh, take a probiotic, take a probiotic. That could be doing <laughs> the exact it, opposite. I see it all the time on um, social media now too, where it could actually make matters worse. And my SIBO was a result of, you know, a lot of things that kind of led up to it, but probiotics were actually what tipped me over the edge. And I was like, oh, people are saying probiotics are great for your gut health. I should take one. 100 billion, next thing you know, uh, it was almost a whole year of healing. So obviously the terrain that I put that probiotic into, like my digestive system was already quite compromised and had a lot of issues. And that just excess of bacteria overloaded my system and kind of tipped me over the edge. So again, like any supplement, even if you think it's quote unquote safe, please make sure you know why you're taking it and that your body has an actual need for taking it and just understand how complex this really is. If you think about how long we talked about digestion for before we even use the word microbiome, why would we try to fix all digestive problems by just putting some extra bacteria at the end? Don't really make a lot of sense. Think about it this way. If, if your car's not starting and you just keep pouring gas and gas and gas into it, eventually the gas is going to overflow. And, and this happens a lot of the time. Like you're not trying to fight fire with fire, right? And that's why a lot of the time what I feel like specifically with probiotic supplements are going to be happening to people. They've got a fire inside them. So they think, oh, I should kill whatever's going on inside me with this fire, aka the probiotics. And really, they're just adding to the flames. So test, don't guess, baby. Test, don't guess. That's for sure. So let's take it from the top. Going back to the cephalic phase. So we talked a little bit about nervous system and why it's really important to be in this relaxed state. So it's very, very essential that we talk about nervous systems and not only the parasympathetic nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system, but it's also really interesting that in the past couple decades, we have a whole division of our nervous system that is called the enteric nervous system. And this is an entire branch of the nervous system that contains an enormous number of neurons that are associated with the gastrointestinal tract and helps to control a lot of its functions such as motility, aka movement, secretions, and local blood flow. 
So there's actually more nerve cells in the gut than there are in the spinal cord, which is pretty crazy to think about. And again, the fact that we have relabeled a third division of the nervous system just for our GI tract goes to show how important our digestion is for our overall health, number one, and number two, how important our nervous system is for healing and for our digestive system. So the enteric nervous system gets input both from the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So whether we're in fight or flight mode or we're in rest and digest mode, that is affecting your GI tract and the nerves that are associated with it. And now you've probably heard me, if you follow me on social media, talk about something called the vagus nerve. And no, I'm not talking about Las Vegas. I'm talking about the main nerve that's involved in the gut-brain connection. So this connection to the enteric nervous system is one of the reasons why stress can be so impactful on digestion. So we have this nerve that is essentially sending signals about the food we digest, the amount we digest, and the volume we digest to our brain. And it's also sending signals from our brain to our digestive system about whether or not we're ready to digest food, what's going on in the body, what's going on with our stress levels, and essentially allowing us to get into that place where we are able to or ready to take in nutrition and to break that down. So as Denon mentioned before, getting into this rest and digest mode before eating with a few deep breaths can help to activate our parasympathetic nervous system by stimulating the vagus nerve. So it not only supports that branch related to the GI tract, the enteric nervous system, but it also allows our gut and brain to communicate in order to secrete and send digestive resources to the digestive tract. I wonder if in certain cultures they actually realized that maybe praying, for example, before dinner time would be a way to not only obviously, you know, provide gratitude for the food, but it would also help the digestion process uh, when they have their meal. Because a lot of time going back thousands of years, you know, they may only have one meal a day, maybe if they're lucky, sometimes maybe one every three or four days. And in fact, they realize that this may help the absorption process of this meal that they get. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder. You know, a lot of the um, therapies are the things that we talk about. These are like traditional things that they did. I remember when I was studying um, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, I was like, oh, probably what we should have been doing this whole time. (laughs) Science is only just catching up. Yeah, science is only just catching up to some of these really um, intricate and beautiful medicines that we have from so long ago. And like a lot of the stuff, like they really had it figured out, you know? (laughs) So it's kind of like going back to that. And if you would think of like a classic mealtime, I know like my family, we used to always pray before meals and we had no phones at the table and like all of these quote unquote rules that we were like, oh, no phones again, no TV at dinner. But really like we've gotten so far away from that where that's the best thing that we can be doing for ourselves around mealtime. That being said though, you know, even just last week, I was looking at uh, Dan Garner, for example, who was going over certain Ayurvedic practices that show that there's no value to it nowadays, right? So it's interesting, like, as much as science is catching up to some of these things, it's also starting to kind of displace which things are actually, no, we don't really need to look at maybe a couple of these herbs that don't matter. But then again, this 80% of stuff over here is still extremely important. I am so excited for the next 20 years of science. Mm-hmm. Me too. So before we even begin to eat, we could already potentially have digestive issues if our nervous system is not in the right state. So I have actually seen a lot in my practice is clients will be bloated after meals and their bloating completely goes away without changing anything except for breathing. Or I've also seen clients who are on digestive protocols, you know, maybe they have candida overgrowth, H. pylori, um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, some sort of imbalance. And We go through, you know, a gut healing protocol, which is a few different steps. And then one thing that's 
a game changer for them is they're like, oh, so I decided to go back and to read the initial program you sent to me, or I'll bring it up to them and ask them if they've been doing everything that I wrote under the stress and mealtime section. And they're like, no, and they implement it and it's a game changer. And they're like, wow, I kind of breezed over that in the beginning thinking it wasn't that important. And I'm like, well, it's in there for a reason, my love. So <laughs> these aren't the things that we should be breezing over. And I can say from experience myself and working with so many women is that these things can really be the game changer for a lot of people, in addition to, of course, um, nutritional therapies and supplementation as needed. So also things such as traumatic head injury. I had a client who uh, she had multiple concussions and that actually was really affecting her digestive system, um, experiencing constipation, which was related to her nervous system. So in adjunction to working with other practitioners for head injury and for therapies, we were really able to allow her to have daily bowel movements and kind of bring her system back to balance as it was impacted by this traumatic head in injury. Incredible. Psychological trauma, food fear, these can all also um, impact our digestive ability and potentially lead to issues and symptoms such as bloating and gas. And I think food fear is pretty important to touch on because I've had clients who have a lot of food sensitivities and, you know, when you think like, oh, I'm eating this food, let's say gluten, and I'm sensitive to it and I'm going to have this reaction and our body's in a stressed out state, of course you're going to have that reaction. But I had a client who was like, oh, I accidentally ate X, Y, and Z because it was in something and I didn't know and I felt fine. And I'm like, yeah, remember that stress thing <laughs> that we always talk about? So stress plays a really, really, really big role in our digestion and just allowing our nervous system to be regulated when we're eating. And that also stems to practices that we do throughout our day. So not just around mealtime. So we touched on this a little bit, but in addition to bringing your body into that parasympathetic state, another issue that could cause GI uh, issues or symptoms is eating while distracted. So this ultimately takes our presence away from the fact that we're eating and it reduces the use of our senses to first experience the food. So therefore we'll be decreasing digestive resource output. So if you remember that we mentioned that up to 20% of your stomach acid can be produced just in that cephalic phase. If we're distracted and we're not really present with our food, we're missing out on a lot of those resources for digestion. So after the cephalic phase, once we actually ingest the food and begin the mechanical digestion, there could be some issues that happen before food travels down the esophagus. So some of these we've touched on before. There are enzymes in your mouth, such as salivary amylase, that begin the process of food breakdown. So in the mouth, we could have issues with glands or enzyme production. So if we have a deficiency in those enzymes or maybe issues with our glands and we don't have enough, this can impact the beginning stages of digestion. We can also have changes to our bacterial culture. So I know we talked about the gut microbiome, but we also have an oral microbiome. So we have a bacteria that are inside of our oral cavity, and these are also aiding in digestion. And we also have the main culprit of issues, which is not chewing your food well enough. Again, this is so common. I'm willing to bet 99% of you listening to this are not chewing your food well enough. Each bite should be between 30 to 40 times. So try this out and see how far off you are. And going back, this does have a few different functions. So the biggest one would be increasing surface area so that more of our digestive resources can actually access that food. And it also brings food close to the texture of the upcoming stages. So if you remember, we talked about that chyme, which is essentially a sludge. If we could get our food pretty close to that sludgy state before it actually starts to move through our digestive system, our body's gonna have a lot easier of a time breaking down that food and we won't need to use as much resources. And especially with people who have compromised digestive systems, this can be really, really helpful. So eating something like, you know, raw broccoli, where it's like 
you quite literally are essentially trying to like take a hammer and break through a piece of wood (laughs) with your digestive system to get at it, that's going to be a lot more difficult. You're going to have more digestive issues than having something like broccoli soup. So we can already start to do that through the process of chewing food in the mouth. So chew your food, friends. Well, that that does bring up a good question though, right? So this, I've heard this come up many, many times before is um, this brings up the argument against smoothies, you know, because you're not the surface area has already been blended and you're essentially, you're not getting time to go through the cephalics phase, uh, which you regularly would. So I'm not going to chew the blueberries. I'm not going to chew the meat. I'm not going to chew all of the other ingredients that are going to be involved in it. Therefore, we're not going to be getting the enzymes present in the very first phase. Although it's going to make the next phases uh, much, much easier. What is the effect of a smoothie? I think smoothies can be really great for people who have compromised digestive systems. And because it already is pretty close to that process of chyme, we are able, like it's already broken down with more surface area, right? So we are able to digest it quicker. But then that's the thing is people might digest it too quickly and then they say like, I'm hungry an hour, two hours later, right? Because we've already taken away a lot of that uh, friction or a lot of the the processes that need to happen in order to digest that food. So typically somebody could digest it with a little bit more ease and they might get hungry a little bit quicker. All right, so after the food goes from your mouth, it's gonna start to travel down the esophagus. And we have a little sum sum called your esophageal sphincter. And so these are essentially bands of muscle and they open and close kind of like a valve. So they help to keep what's in your stomach inside, like acid, and they help to keep what's not in your stomach, not in your stomach. So therefore, if we have issues with the sphincter, this can play a role in digestive issues such as GERD and heartburn, right? So if we want our stomach acid to stay in our stomach, but we have issues with this valve that keeps it in there and the valve is open, um, this is often why you'll see like people with heartburn or GERD, they might lie down after a meal and this acid starts to actually move up into that cavity. So we also need to have um, tonification of the esophageal sphincters and the muscles around it that allow it to open and close properly. So once the food then gets into the stomach, more places where there can be problems when we're looking at symptoms and imbalances. So a huge one is stomach acid production. This is extremely, extremely common. And I see this all the time in my practice. And I see this all the time in clients who have bloating after meals, especially issues with protein breakdown. So if you feel like when you eat protein, you get tired or it almost feels like that food is sitting in your stomach for a long amount of time, or you have burping, um, Sometimes heartburn can actually be due to low stomach acid, which is a really common misconception. People feel like high stomach acid causes heartburn, which is not always the case. Can also lead to SIBO. Lots can go wrong if you have issues with your stomach acid. So we don't want too little, but we also don't want too much. And things like stress and medication, um, PPIs, so proton pump inhibitors, these can all deplete the stomach acid production and lead to having too little stomach acid, which again can cause issues later on. As well as age. Age is one thing that people don't take into account as well. Um, One thing that does start to go down with age is hydrochloric acid, which is why a lot of times in nutrition textbooks, you're going to see that people who are getting older need to have less protein, when in fact, it really should be the exact opposite. The Mm -hmm. reason you would have less protein as you're getting older is because they don't have the acids to break it down. However, if we're able to bring those acids back up, keep the protein high, therefore gain or regain or maintain more muscle into your later years, we're going to see better, uh, more I would say, able bodies in our later stages of life. So that's one thing I hear a lot of that I horribly disagree with is that 
uh, less protein as you age, because I really do think the maintenance of it is equally important um, just in, in your early 20s there as much as in your in your 70s. But if we can look at the hydrochloric acid uh, and the protein breakdown later in, in life, um, we won't see some of these um, misnomers in, in research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really important to get enough protein, really important to support your stomach acid. I recommend all the time clients who are honestly like 40 and above take a stomach acid support and we can link some in the show notes for you. Yeah, BioOptimizers has one called HCL Breakthrough. I don't know if it's still called that, um, but we do have a code with him, Embodied 10. The same thing with like digestive enzymes. That's We love the digestive enzymes with him. I don't know if we're going to talk about them at any point in this, but... Yes, we will. So coming up next, food moves into the small intestine. So as we talked about, this is where most of the digestion magic happens. And it's kind of interesting, you know, because you always hear about supports for things like stomach acid. And then you take things like probiotics for the large intestine. And the supports kind of just skimp out on the most important, arguably, the most important part of our digestive tract, the small intestine. So we have a large percentage of our food getting absorbed. And we can see issues here such as poor motility and movement. Again, this is really common. So this can lead to issues such as constipation, bloating, and slow transit time. So the way to actually test your transit time is you're going to eat a bunch of beets. You can also do charcoal, but I prefer beets. And this will essentially turn your poo red. You're going to time how long it takes from the ingestion of the beets for your poo to come out that color. And that is your transit time. And slow transit time is not great. It can lead to issues such as excess estrogen because we have estrogens that are in your stool trying to leave the body, can get reabsorbed through the intestinal wall into your bloodstream and in a more potent form. We can also have issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where some of that undigested food or digested food is starting to ferment and grow an excess of bacteria which can travel into your small intestine. So not great to have poor motility, um, very, very common cause of things like SIBO again. So really, really important to make sure that this movement is occurring properly. In the small intestine, we can also see deficiencies in enzymes. So this is where, you know, something like a digestive enzyme support would be really helpful. And other resources, such as some from those accessory organs we talked about, like pancreatic enzymes, liver bile, lipase, which helps to break down fat, and lactase, which helps to break down lactose. So depending on where there is a deficiency, there can be slight variations in what the symptoms or the issues present are. So for example, if we have lack of bile, this can lead to issues digesting fat. If we have lack of enzymes needed to break down lactose, this would obviously underlie lactose intolerance or dairy sensitivity. And the accessory organs that we touched on, therefore, are key part of digestion. If we do not have adequate bile and adequate enzymes, we are not going to be breaking down and absorbing our food properly. And so there are some studies that show up to 20% of IBS cases, as I mentioned, can be due to pancreatic insufficiency. And so we can't just glaze over all of these other parts of our digestive system that are really important. And this is often why you'll hear people going to digestive enzymes as another like, oh, if you're bloated, try taking some enzymes before. Yes, it's important. And at the same time, it's often not enough to completely solve these problems. And the question would be why somebody has this deficiency, right? We don't just want to keep supplementing, supplementing and not actually address why the problem is there in the first place. And a lot of these digestive enzymes, they have some enzymes, but we also need to make sure that we have the proper enzymes for our body that we're able to break down the foods that might be causing us issues. So if somebody has an issue with, let's say, breaking down, um, let's say beans, for example, and they start taking a digestive enzyme that doesn't have the enzymes for bean breakdown, 
kind of missed the mark on that one. (laughs) So I feel like people, you know, they blindly buy these things without knowing. They maybe just choose a cheap one or my friend recommended that I get X, Y, and Z from Walmart. And I'm like, oh God, (laughs) you know why you're taking that? They're like, well, I was a little bit bloated. I'm like, all right, love, don't worry. Mama's got you. Mama's got you. We're going to retire that Walmart shelf shit. There's different digestive enzyme blends have different strains of enzymes that you need. So having like a well-blended proteolytic enzyme is important. So like our go-to choice is uh, Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Um, for us, at least my rule of thumb is like, if I'm having a protein meal that has over 30 grams of protein, which is most of my protein meals, I'm going to use some enzymes. And especially if I'm eating like red meat, that's when I really want to jump in with that. We also use um, uh, Gluten Guardian. I also love the product um, Thorn Biogest. It is a great product. So it does have some support for stomach acid and it also has like ox bile. So it's helping with that bile production. And I typically like to, depending on the situation, um, really choose a supplement that's going to help each client as an individual. So Masszymes are really great. Love those. Take those with large meals. And we also use some other supplements with our clients, depending on what they have going on. So we did talk about how the small intestine is a main site for absorption of nutrients. So this is actually pretty cool. We have these tiny little structures that are called villi, and they're essentially like these hair-like projections, really small, and they're in the walls of the intestines. So food actually diffuses through these to be absorbed, which I think is pretty cool. And then it enters into something called the hepatic portal system, which is essentially a system that sends it towards the liver for filtering. And so these structures, the villi, can help to increase the area for absorption so that we can really get the most out of our food. So tiny little hair-like structures in the walls of our intestine, food diffuses through them, which allows it to be absorbed, and they just help to increase the overall surface area. So when we're talking about digestive disorders and symptoms, changes to or atrophy of these villi can also cause issues. So the most common one here is celiac disease, where you can actually see a flattening of the villi and they um, yeah, become flattened, but it also can be seen in autoimmune conditions, which can underlie a lot of food sensitivities or just overall issues with nutrient absorption, which can lead to malnutrition. Now, speaking of the intestinal walls, villi are not the only part of the intestinal lining that need to be intact and working well. Many of you have heard of something called leaky gut or the more accepted term nowadays is intestinal permeability. So this is a relatively common digestive disorder and it's typically caused by other root factors such as bacterial overgrowth or just overall inflammation in the digestive tract. So in a healthy digestive system, the cells of the intestinal walls are held together by something called tight junctions. So this essentially holds the cells together so tightly so that crap that's inside of your intestines is not going to spill out into other areas of the body. Think of it like a like a bunch of magnetic marbles attached together. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of magnetic marbles shouldn't be able to be broken apart very easily. However, as soon as one of those links come loose, you got a giant hole that unless you pull them back in, you know, bring those tight junctions back in together. That's essentially what those, uh, that's what's essentially stopping stuff from passing through. Mm -hmm. So when we have issues with intestinal permeability, so again, can result from inflammation, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, certain additives in food actually like polysorbate 80 can uh, underlie this. These junctions that usually hold together the cells start to become loose and they create space. So now we have undigested food particles, pathogens, and other material that can move from the intestines into the bloodstream and into circulation in your body. And now, if you remember the fact that we said that your GI tract is essentially like a tube of the outside world moving through you, 
these outside world contents are spilling over into your bloodstream. So when that happens, just like a pathogen, your body is on high alert. It recognizes, hold up, this is not part of us. And it starts to um, have a reaction where we increase our immune system so that we can start to send some of our resources towards this thing to essentially attack it or kill it off, right? So now we have our immune system on high alert. And this can not only underlie things like autoimmunity, where your body stops to be able to recognize what cells and what what's you and what's not you essentially, it can also start to wreak havoc on different areas of your body. So we can have systemic effects in areas like our joints, our brain functioning, our energy levels, and our skin. And we can also experience something similar to this called endotoxemia, where we have this die-off of bacteria that again gets into the bloodstream and starts to become quite toxic to us and can cause lots of these issues in other areas of the body. So let's do a little recap of the small intestine. I know there was a lot going on there. So essentially, we need enough enzymes, bile, and resources, both from your intestines and your accessory organs. We also need proper movement and peristalsis, and we need the health and integrity of the intestinal walls, including those little hair-like structures called villi. So let's move on to the large intestine. I'm sure by now, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard us mention it, you've probably heard it before, the microbiome. So this is essentially the population of microbes, including things like bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live inside of us. So a little fun fact for y'all, as humans, we are actually outnumbered by bacteria cells 10 to 1. So for every one human cell we have, we have 10 bacterial cells that are making up on our body. So it's pretty safe to say that these bacteria cells are pretty important. Now I want you to take a quick mental note again about how long we've been talking about digestion, and now we're really getting into bacteria. So again, just goes to show that Bacteria is not the end-all be-all of the digestive system. And I feel like even from a clinical standpoint, you know, I have coaches all the time who are uh, really, really hyper-focused on just bacteria and fail to address all of these other things. Or I have, you know, clients might come to me and they have SIBO and they've done a round of antimicrobial herbs or maybe even antibiotics, which could have addressed the bacteria, but they never assessed how the person's motility or transit time was if the person has adequate stomach acid. And so we can't only look at this end piece of the picture and call that the end-all be-all. We need to understand everything that happens before your poop even gets to the large intestine or that food gets to the large intestine and really work backwards to understand the whole picture, not just that one little piece of the pie. So this isn't to say that bacteria isn't important because it definitely is. And our microbiome health is huge, not only in our digestive health, but also our overall health, our brain functioning, our immune system. But I just want to reinforce the fact that taking a probiotic will not, in fact, solve all of your digestive woes. (laughs) And the large majority of our bacteria, again, are living in this large intestine. So within that bacteria community, we have both commensal bacteria, aka good guys, and opportunistic bacteria, aka bad guys. So when we talk about dysbiosis, this is essentially an imbalance of good to bad guys. So we want them in a ratio of about four to one. So for every four commensal bacteria, we have one opportunistic bacteria. And so dysbiosis, therefore, can occur a few different ways, right? We could have too much or too little on either end. So either too much bad guys, too little good guys, or we could have a combination of both, or we could just have too much bacteria or too little bacteria in general. Now, in this podcast, we aren't going to get into the specifics of dysbiosis or certain strains of bacteria or how they all play a role in different things in your body. 
We're not going to get into potential pathogens, parasites, fungus, etc., as we'll be diving a little bit into those in the upcoming podcast. But for now, what you really need to know is that these bacteria play a crucial role in digestion and too much or too little can both be problematic and having bacteria in the wrong place can also be problematic. So I talk about it all the time, mentioned it a lot in this podcast. So things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, this is when some of the bacteria that should be in your large intestine migrate into your small intestine and cause issues. So inside of the intestines, we can also see structural issues that can lead to digestive symptoms. And we won't get into these either, but these are things like colitis, Crohn's, diverticulitis, polyps, etc. Um, so it's important to know that there are some other issues like inflammatory bowel disease that can cause digestive issues. So they aren't necessarily considered part of everybody's or a healthy digestive tract, but it is important to also bring light of these issues as sometimes people might be having some more chronic or severe issues like IBD, so if somebody has, you know, blood in the stool, I would definitely send them right away to a medical health practitioner to rule out these things as well. So once leaving the large intestine, feces travels out of your rectum through defecation. So again, this process requires proper motility and movement and also adequate lubrication to take place. So we do need enough water, um, sometimes issues to the actual muscles that are surrounding the rectum and the anus. So you know, things like pelvic floor issues or just general inflammation in that area can impact your muscles ability to move the crud out of your body. Holy smokes, that sounded like a lot. Denon is yawning on the other side of the desk. It was a lot of information to take in. So go back and listen if you need to. And again, the purpose of this podcast was really to talk about this interplay we have of all of these different processes of digestion. And I know it was a lot of information, very, very dense with information information, but it's just to bring light to the fact that we do need to be looking at our system as a whole and all of these little puzzle pieces that come together that really bring us this big word of balance. And when we have issues with digestion, bloating, gas, loose stools, constipation, diarrhea, food sensitivities, it's usually not just one thing because if you think about the food moving down your digestive tract or how we talked about sometimes when one thing is low, it can cause issues elsewhere. If we're only addressing one small piece and there are other issues that are out of balance, even though we might be able to get rid of that symptom or heal it acutely, it's probably going to come back if we don't address all of the issues that are present. A big point here is like, we're trying to show you the, the depth of this path so that you understand like, look, as much as self-diagnosis is great, you know, and we want to fix our, our issues without having to go to a doctor or going to some sort of health professional that can help us with this, you can see at the complexity of this all the way from top to bottom through the system. So just using a Band-Aid effort such as, you know, a probiotic or just enzymes or, you know, something small like that isn't going to likely fix the process and it can make it quite a bit worse. So that's why it is important that if you are somebody who is feeling digestive issues, you should talk with a professional about it. Mm -hmm. And something I can say confidently by working with hundreds of women is that when something is off, there are always other things in the body that are affected too. So here we talk about digestion, but you know, when digestion is off, hormones could also be off. Or when we have issues with, you know, trauma or head injury that can cause issues with digestion. So again, we cannot heal when we only look at one symptom. We need to look at ourselves as a whole. And this is why working with practitioners who have like a holistic perspective or a functional health perspective that actually understand the way the body works is so important. And just taking like one or two supplements without actually addressing all of the other stuff going on is 
going to be a waste of money straight up. I was going to try to sugarcoat it. Protocols. I always revert back to just not taking a quick, easy supplement, but it's the same thing if you're just going to Google quick, you know, gut health protocols. That's just as bad and oftentimes can be detrimental for your health long term if you haven't got to the actual root cause of the issue. Mm-hmm. And like, I've seen also people going on, you know, they maybe read a post and they're like, I think I have SIBO. So they take this huge like antimicrobial protocol and they kill off, yeah, maybe some bad guys they have, but also all their good guys. And then they leave their digestive system in an even more compromised state because they don't understand what needs to follow an antimicrobial. And then they eat some sugar and all of a sudden are proliferating all of the bad bacteria that we're worried about. (laughs) And it is, it is really important to, you know, especially when we have something like digestion, which affects quite literally everything, because if we aren't getting the proper nutrition from our food, we're going to be tired. We're going to start to see issues arise elsewhere. We're going to create an environment for disease in our body. So really, really important to take this stuff seriously. And, you know, it can be a little bit of an investment. Like sometimes people will say like, oh yeah, but you know, I wanted to do the test, but it was something like $200 and it's, it's really more expensive to be unwell and to be dealing with these issues. And it can be a little bit of an investment, both, you know, time-wise and money-wise and of your energy to focus on healing. But it's so, so important to give our body um, that respect and to really take, take the initiative to work on our health and figuring out what's going on so that you can stop having symptoms all day, every day. You know, I had a client reach out one time and she was like, yeah, I just don't really feel like this is the right time. And then she came back a week later and she's like, you know what, actually, I'm tired of suffering. This is affecting me every single day. I'm ready to commit. And within a couple months, all of her digestive issues were gone. And she was like, I'm so glad (laughs) that I reached out to you because otherwise she would have been in the same place. You know, I'm not really ready just sitting there waiting on it and having these issues that could eventually lead to more serious things later on. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share on social media or share it with a friend who has digestive issues because guess what? I think we all know a person who does have digestive issues and the first step in helping to fix these issues is actually understanding the mechanisms of the system that we are trying to fix. So Education is power, y'all. It absolutely is. My name is Denon Maximchuk. And I'm Sarah Collins. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This podcast provides general information and discussions about health and related subjects. The information and other content provided in this podcast or any linked materials are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. If you or any other person has medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider and seek other professional medical treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you may have heard on this podcast or any linked materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are of no relation to those of any academic, hospital, health practice, or other institution.